Greetings, brothers and sisters. What an incredible blessing to join with you on this resurrection morning, to have our hearts already filled uh, with the glories of our Christ. It is a great blessing to, 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 to be with you this morning. Saints, I wish we could all be together. I know that that's the longing of your heart as well. Guests, I just want to thank you if uh, you are uh, joining our live stream this morning. Um, we are just blessed to have you with us. We're going to open up our Bibles now to Romans 5, verses 1 through 11. And as you turn there, I want to uh, practice a little something. And as many of you know, that it's a tradition in many churches on resurrection morning. Uh, it's called the Paschal greeting, the Paschal greeting. And you've probably done this in resurrection services in the past. Maybe some of you are doing it in your homes this morning already. But when someone says Christ is, is risen, you know how to respond. He is risen indeed. When someone says Christ is risen, you say he is risen indeed. So let's try that now. I'm going to say Christ is risen. And I want you, whether you're alone in your home or as a family, to say he is risen indeed. I'm going to mean it, and I want you to mean it too. Christ is risen. Okay, that's good. No, let's do it again. Christ is risen. Christ is risen. There's the echo here, but that's the only thing that I hear. And that is uh, different for a Resurrection Sunday. It's a different one than you've ever experienced as well, too. There's really lots of things about this resurrection that are different. Some of you have, have traditions on a Resurrection Sunday. Maybe you do an egg hunt with your family. Some of you would have spent the past week buying new dresses or fancy outfits for your boys and girls. A lot of that seems less necessary now. Some of you may be even watching this morning in your pajamas. Resurrection Sunday, for some of you, may be the one Sunday a year where you wear a tie to church or maybe even a suit. You get family pictures done. You get together with a family afterwards and share a meal or maybe with your extended family. There's ways that this Sunday may not feel like a resurrection Sunday to you. Some of the, the traditions may be missing. But this Sunday, by God's grace, we are going to exalt in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We will rejoice in the resurrection this Sunday by God's grace. We will rejoice with longing to see our resurrected Lord and with longing to be joined with the saints at his return. I'm going to read now Romans 5, verses 1 through 11. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our, our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we exalt in hope of the glory of God. And not only this, but we also exalt in our tribulation. Knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance. And perseverance, proven character. Proven character, hope. And hope does not disappoint. Because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who is given to us. For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. 
much more then, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, but we also exalt in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Let's pray together. Now, Father, we are blessed to call you by that name because of the work of your son. And our hearts cry to you as father because you have poured out your spirit into us. We can pray to you. We can sing to you. We can exalt in you because of the reconciliation that you have accomplished. Father, we come before you desperate for your spirit to bring your work that exalts your son to apply it to our hearts so that we can be transformed, so that we can leave here people exalting in you, exalting in you because of the work that you have done through Jesus Christ. Lord, we ask your help now. In Jesus' name, amen. Last Sunday, we were in Romans 5, verses 1 through 5. And we saw five certainties that follows uh, follow our justification by faith. We saw the certainty of the peace we have with God. We have the certainty of grace. We stand in grace being introduced there through Jesus Christ. We have the certainty of hope of future glory. And we have the certainty that God has a purpose in our trials. And we, we just read that, that we can even exalt in our trials because trials brings about perseverance and perseverance, proven character and proven character, hope. We also saw that that hope won't be a disappointing hope. We will never be ashamed or embarrassed by that hope because of the assurance we have. And that assurance is the subjective experience of the Father's love abundantly poured out to us through his spirit. We saw at Good Friday service um, from verses 6 to 8, that that assurance is communicated to us, though, through truth. It's not in some assurance we get through a mysticism or, or through trying to achieve a certain amount of tranquility or even drinking enough, enough caffeine to see, oh, I really feel God's love. No, that assurance of hope comes through truth. And on Friday night, we saw the truth of God's love on Calvary. We saw the demonstration of God's love for us while we were helpless, ungodly, sinners. We saw that Christ dying for us, the wicked, is the fuel that God's Spirit uses to convince believers that our hope is certain, that we will not be ashamed at the return of Christ. Paul anchors our hope in God's love for us at Calvary. But he doesn't stop there. We've been convinced of God's love by Christ's death for sinners. But in verses 9 to 11, we're going to see how certain is that hope. What is, so we're, we're, we're convinced of his love, but what is the longevity of that hope? Is this hope that we have, this confidence, is it guaranteed? Will it sustain us? Can anything undo this hope? 
leads us to our big idea this morning. Exalt in God, who is guaranteed salvation for his people through Christ's death and resurrection. Exalt in God, who is guaranteed God's salvation for his people through Christ's death and, re and resurrection. That's the big idea for this morning. I'll say it one more time. Exalt in God, who is guaranteed salvation for his people through Christ's death and, and, and resurrection. We're going to begin this morning by looking at two truths in verses 9 and 10. Now, both verses 9 and 10, it's the same basic logic stated twice. And verse 9 is parallel to verse 10. Each verse argues from the greater to the, the lesser. If God did the greater, he'll definitely do the lesser or, the, or, in a sense, the easier. It's kind of like saying, if you spend all the money it takes to completely buy a new car, of course you'll get the oil changed. Right? It's an argument from the greater to the lesser. Now, we know that people aren't always logical. Right, Just because you buy a new car doesn't mean you'll change the oil. Although it makes sense. If you're going to spend that much, of course you're going to follow through. Well, while we may be illogical, God is not. If God has done the greater, if God has paid the cost, he will certainly follow through. He follows through on the death of Christ with the life of Christ. So what we're going to do is look at two truths first, and then we're going to look how we ought to respond. So the first truth, and remember I said there's, there's two para parallel statements. It's, we're going to see in the beginning of verse 9 and in the beginning of verse 10. We'll see the same truth basically twice. And the first truth is this. God guaranteed salvation through Christ's death. Simple. God guaranteed salvation through Christ's death. The beginning of verse 9, Paul talks about this once. Having been justified by his blood. Having been justified by his blood. As we learned last week, to be justified is to be declared righteous by God. It's not only to be cleared of the charges which have been righteously brought against us, but it's also, so it's not only to, to, to be said not guilty, but also to be declared law-abiding to be forgiven, and to be declared right. We were guilty, every person. We had smashed God's law, and justice required consequences. How could God be both just, the God who punishes sin, and the justifier, the one who, who changes sinners so that they can have a relationship with the one who's righteous? And this justification God does by his blood. It says in the beginning of verse 9, having now been justified by his blood. The language of blood brings us back to the sacrificial system of the Old Testament as an animal was, was substituted in the place of sinners so that sinners could go on in a right relationship with God. Atonement for our sins needed to be made. Our sins needed to be covered. They needed to be cleansed. God's wrath had to be satisfied. And God's justice was satisfied on the cross, so we should be forgiven through Jesus' shedding of blood. Ephesians 1.7 says, In him, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. By his blood. 
No, Jesus just didn't give blood. He just didn't go and donate blood. That language, by his blood, refers to Jesus' death, the death of the eternally beloved, perfectly pleasing Son of God. And that is the great price that God paid. We see it in the beginning of verse 9. This, this is how God guarantees our salvation. Beginning of verse 9, much more than having now been justified by his blood. And that's the first part of the greater. Remember I said that there's parallel seconds. There's parallel statements, though. We see the second part of that parallel statement beginning in verse 10. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. He's, he's saying the same thing in a different way. Again, this is a picture of the greater. The word enemies in the beginning of verse 10 describes our relationship with God before Christ. We can add to the list of, of uh, titles we saw on Friday night. Friday night, we saw that we were helpless. We saw that we were ungodly. That we saw that we were sinners. And today, this morning, we were enemies. We were hostile toward God. Romans 8, 7 describes that hostility we had toward God says that the mindset on the flesh is hostile towards God, Romans 8, 7, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. We were hostile to God. We rejected his law. We didn't want to obey his law. We couldn't have obeyed his law if we wanted to. We were hostile to God. James 4, verse 4, describes the condition we were in. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And one time that describes all of us. We were friends of the world. We were doing what we wanted instead of what God wanted. And we were in hostility to God. Ephesians 4 verses 18 and 19 describes what we were like. We were darkened in our understanding. We were excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of our hearts, and they, having become callous, hard-hearted, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. And that describes who we were. Our hearts were hard, and we were devoting ourselves to sin. We were going after more and more of it, getting as much sin as we could. We are hostile to God, but that's not all that talks about our, our, our enmity with God. See, God was also at enmity against us. He was righteously angry with us. The storm clouds of God's wrath were brewing. The hammer of God's wrath was raised and, and poised to smash. Here's a few verses that show God's righteous anger demonstrated in upcoming wrath towards sinners. One of them is in Romans 1 verse 18. The wrath of God, the righteous anger, the punishment of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And that's righteous judgment. That is deserved judgment. That is like in the cartoons, the, the, the anvil waiting to fall on Wiley Coyote's head. That is what God's wrath it was waiting to crush us. And it is the wrath that we deserved. 
Romans 2 verses 5 through 6 describes more of that wrath. But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will render to each person according to his deeds. And that describes some of you who are listening this morning. You are storing up wrath. You are piling up more sin so that the weight of that wrath gets heavier and heavier and heavier. Because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself. Don't store up any more judgment. We'll see how we can escape in a minute. Ephesians 5 verses 5 through 6 just says that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Now, we can say that all of us were like that at one point. But if that is still describing you, you have no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. That does not describe those who've been saved. He says, let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. God's judgment is coming. We are, at, we are hostile to God and he's at enmity with us. Though... God was at enmity with us. And though we were hostile toward God, God removed the obstacle in way of peace. He removed the offenses against himself through reconciliation on the cross. And that's what's talked about in the beginning of verse 10. For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. To, to reconciliation is exchanging hostility for a friendly relationship. God accomplishes reconciliation through the death of his son, Jesus Christ. The price of sin has been paid on the cross. The debt of sin has been covered. The punishment of sin has been met. The offense of sin has been eradicated. There is no reason for war to continue because the price of reconciliation has been paid. In verse 10, it says, we were reconciled to God. And that reconciled is a passive verb. It's a passive tense. It's not active. We don't reconcile ourselves to God. We were reconciled to God. We weren't any more, we didn't any more reconcile ourselves to God than a, a cake bakes itself. A cake doesn't bake itself. A cake is baked by someone else. Reconciliation with God has to be made by God. That's what 2 Corinthians 5.18 says. Now all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ. God is the actor in reconciliation. He reconciled us to himself through Christ. And then, and we'll talk more about this, he gives us the ministry of re reconciliation. We are to be engaged in proclaiming the gospel to reconcile others. The uh, famous uh, New Testament scholar F.F. F. Bruce writes, where reconciliation is mentioned in the New Testament, God or Christ is always the reconciler. And human beings are the object of his reconciling act. God is the reconciler, and we are the ones who are reconciled. The situation, Bruce continues, may be compared to that of a king proclaiming an amnesty for rebellious subjects. 
who are urged to accept his gracious pardon while it is extended to them. The king offers up amnesty and those that he was at war with are called to accept the pardon. 2 Corinthians 5.20 is an example of this. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. And that's what I'm doing now. As though God were making an appeal through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And that is what happens every time the gospel is shared. We are, are begging on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. That is what this ministry of reconciliation is. And we say, be reconciled to God, accept this offer of reconciliation. See, God has guaranteed his people's salvation through justification, through reconciliation for any who will come to Jesus Christ through faith. Your war with God does not have to continue. You can be at peace with God through what God has accomplished through Jesus Christ, through what we celebrated on Good Friday. You can be at peace with God. You can have your sins forgiven. Go to him. Say, God, I need that reconciliation. I need my sins forgiven. I'll look no other place besides Christ. I know I'm not good enough. I know I can't change my own heart. I need this salvation. And God is willing to be reconciled to you. That is the good news of the gospel. That is this first truth, that God guarantees salvation through Christ's death, that justification has happened, that reconciliation has happened. But you could wonder, will God keep you justified? Or can you slip back onto the wrong side of the law? Can you be kind of find yourself in prison again, awaiting another death sentence? Will you stay justified? Will God stay reconciled to you? Or did God just kind of have a, a temporary truce with you? Was he just waiting for another flare-up uh, of your rebellion, and then the wrath is coming again? Will your salvation last? Is your hope certain? Do you have reason to rejoice? Do you have reason to exalt in God? And the answer is yes. And this leads us to our second truth. Remember, I said it's an argument from the greater to the lesser. If God has given his son for you, if God has justified you, if God has reconciled you, then what? Well, let's go back to Romans 5, 9. And here's the second truth. God guaranteed salvation through Christ's resurrection. I bet you saw that coming. God has guaranteed salvation through Christ's death. He has also guaranteed salvation through Christ's resurrection. And I think that we're going to see that in both of these second halves here. It's, uh, it, it's hinted at in verse 9, and it's clear in verse 10. So let's, so let's go back to verse 9. Much more than, having now been justified by his blood, he says, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. Having now been justified. This is, the, again, the past tense work of God. The passive, are, it, 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 it's passive verb. It's the work that God does to us. Because we have been justified, we can be certain that we shall be saved. We will be saved, future tense, from the wrath of God through him. We do not need to fear. We who have been justified by God through faith, we do not need to fear when God pours out judgment upon this earth. We do not need to fear God's wrath. But why? 
Why don't we need a fear anymore? Well, Paul quickly answers it with two words, through him. I'm going to read to you 1 Thessalonians 5.9. Paul writes there, For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. But Paul is doing more here, I think, than just focusing on the death of Christ. He's doing more here than focusing on the, the, the work of atonement, the work of our cleansing, the work of our, of our forgiveness, of our justification. I'm going to read now 1 Thessalonians 5.9 again, but I'm going to continue on to verse 10. 1 Thessalonians 5.9, I'm going to read it again. For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Here's verse 10 in 1 Thessalonians 1. Oh, yeah, I'm, I'm skipping to 1 Thessalonians 1. Sorry about that. Uh, I'm going to have to turn there now and make sure I'm not messing this all up. Okay, so so and now I, I'm I, I'm so first it was First Thessalonians five nine, and now I'm going to 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 the, to the beginning of the chap of the book First Thessalonians one ten. Sorry about that. First Thessalonians one ten. Well, I'll pick up in in First Thessalonians one nine. For they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you. That word that the word about the Thessalonians was spreading. How you turn to God from idols to serve a living and true God. And here's verse 10. And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. That is Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. And there we see the connection that we're waiting for his son from heaven, whom God raised from the dead. That is Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. In 1 Thessalonians 1.10, we see the connection between a resurrected Jesus and being rescued from a wrath to come. The risen Jesus is the rescuing Jesus. Now, we're going to see that even more. What, 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 what Paul says in the, at the end of Romans 5.9, Romans 5.9, that we have been saved through him. He's going to make a little even more clear at the end of Romans 5.10. So let me read from Romans 5.9 again. Much more than having now been justified by his blood. That's a greater. Here's lesser. We shall be saved through the wrath of God through him. And then verse 10. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. See, the obstacles have been removed. Wrath has been satisfied. Punishment has been paid. Sins have been forgiven. But what guarantees that we stay saved? We shall be saved by his life, by his resurrection. Our guarantee of the future is the resurrection of Christ in the past. Through him, by his life, by the fact that Christ lives now. Could you imagine the uncertainty? And, and really, it, it, I mean, I'm going to say it's impossible to imagine. Christianity would not be Christianity without a resurrected Christ. But imagine for a, a, a second the uncertainty if Christ was still in that tomb. If his bones could be unearthed in some tomb in ancient Israel. What would it even mean to be given the righteousness of a dead Savior, of of someone who, he would be just, just a man? 
Would it last? Would that righteousness last? Would it be permanent? Would reconciliation be eternal? But Jesus didn't stay dead. He is risen. And now that Christ is risen by his life, now that Christ is resurrected from the dead, and now that he has ascended to heaven, he is at the right hand of the Father. And that's one of the great themes of the New Testament, is the exaltation of Christ to the right hand of the Father. Let, let, let me read to you Ephesians 1, verses 20 and 22. When he raised him from the dead, when God raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And God put all things in subjection under Jesus's feet and gave Jesus's head over all things to the church. And we see there the exaltation of Christ supreme over everything. 1 Peter 3.22 describes Jesus at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. Christ is in heaven reigning now. The resurrected Christ is the reigning Christ. So what is this living Jesus doing at the right hand of the Father that guarantees our future rescue, that guarantees that we will not, as he says in verse 10, that we will be saved by his life, and in verse 9, that we will be saved from the wrath of God. Yes, there's, there's, there's no sin left to punish. We've been declared righteous. And there's no hostility left to resolve. We've been reconciled. Those things have already been done. But then why is it dependent upon Jesus' life now? And Paul doesn't explain in detail here. He simply says, by his life. That settles it. But I do think that there's a couple passages uh, that, that add some insight to what Jesus is doing now that guarantees our preservation when he comes back and brings wrath. In Romans 8, verses 33 and 34, Paul writes, Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. And we've spent a lot of time thinking about God's justification and all the confidence that follows. But he continues in verse 34. And notice how his things are going to be the same here. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather or more so, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. And that is what Jesus Christ is doing right now. Jesus Christ, by his life, in his resurrection, is interceding for you, dear brothers and sisters. Christ is interceding for us. And this is a little bit of why we need his resurrection life. Now, this is not, and, and, and I've fallen into the trap of thinking this. It's not interceding as if, as if we've gotten on God's bad side again. And we need a go-between him and us. It's not as, as if we've, we've sinned so much and now God's anger is starting to kind of simmer. And, you know, you know he's kind of like picking up his wrath hammer and maybe he's going to smash us down. And Jesus comes in and he's like, but look, I died for them. No, that is not reconciliation, saints. That is war, right? We have been reconciled to God. He's never picking up his wrath hammer again. That's good news. The gospel is good news. It is bad news to think of God simmering and getting angry there again and getting ready to smash us again. And Jesus has to jump in and say, but wait, I'm the hero. I saved them. That's not the kind of interceding we need. 
we are justified. We cannot be unjustified. We are reconciled. We cannot go back to war with God. Instead, Christ is interceding for us, pleading with the Father to give us all that we need to continue in faith. All the spiritual resources we need communicated to us through his spirit so that we remain faithful to him, so that we remain steadfast in hope, so that we have the Father's love outpoured into our hearts. We see a, a little hint of this even when Jesus was praying on earth and, 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 and he told Peter in Luke 22, verse 32, Luke 22, verse 32, Peter, I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And you, when once you have turned again after disowning me, strengthen your, your brothers. Peter, I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. That's the kind of interceding I need right now from my living Savior, praying that my faith will not fail. How incredible that the Jesus who, who, who took all of the filth of my sin and suffered God's wrath for my sin so that I could be justified, so that I could be reconciled to God, is now at the Father's right hand, praying that I continue in faith. It's beautiful. Hebrews 7.25 says, Therefore he is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Since he always lives to make intercession for them. Our resurrected Savior is interceding for us. He's, he's not purifying our sins anymore. Hebrews 1.3. He, when he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. We don't need any more payment for our sins. The payment has been paid. Hebrews 10, verse 12, having offered one sacrifice for sins all time, sat down at the right hand of God. The sacrifice is done. We are reconciled. We are justified. If you believe in Jesus Christ, if you go to him and say, that is what I need. I need justification. I need reconciliation. If God has done that in your hearts, if he has given you faith through his spirit so that you go to him and you've been justified with him, that the payment's done and now your, your great high priest is there interceding for you. Let me, Hebrews 4, 14 to 16. Oh, these are sweet verses. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. That's what we're doing this morning. We are holding fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And that's the kind of intercession that Jesus is doing right now. Say, Father, they need grace. Father, they need mercy. They need help. The resurrected Jesus is requesting from the Father all the resources you need to continue in hope. Jesus is risen. You who have been justified, you who have been reconciled to God will be saved to the uttermost, will be saved to the end. There is no fear for you who have been justified. There is no fear for you, you reconciled. Jesus lives and for this reason we exalt in God. That's our response. 
So we saw the truth, the first truth, God guaranteed our salvation through Christ's death. The second truth, God guaranteed our salvation through Christ's resurrection. And so how do we respond to this? Well, Paul tells us how in verse 11. And not only this, but we also exalt in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. We exalt in God. We saw last Sunday to exalt can be used in a negative way. It can be used of a, 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 a wicked boasting. We can boast in something like, oh, look at me and what I've done. But exalting can also be used in a positive sense of rejoicing in something that has been given to us, something that we didn't deserve to have. In verse 2, Paul said, we exalt in hope of the glory of God. We are confident that we are going to be transformed into the image of Christ when we see Christ. We exalt in hope. Verse 3, Paul surprised us by saying we exalt in our in our in our tribulation, in our distress, in our squeezings, because tribulation confirms to us our hope. So we exalt in tribulation. It's not because like oh I love the suffering, but because it confirms to us our hope. Well, in verse eleven, Paul t- returns to this theme of exaltation, and as certain as our hope is and it will not disappoint. Our exaltation is not only in the gift of God, but in the giver. Our exaltation is in God himself. And I think that's what Paul's getting at here. And not only this, but we also exalt in God. When a child is given a present, particularly a present that they are surprised by, they hug that present, right? And we can overlook that. You know, in in the immediate wonder, in the surprise, it's an expression of thankfulness, but it's also, it's it, it, it's different, right? They're hugging the present. Who should they be hugging? The giver. And so Paul's, of course, he's encouraging us to exalt in hope and even to exalt in tribulation. But now it's time for us, and it's time for us this resurrection morning to exalt in our God. God's generosity is to end in God's exaltation in rejoicing in him. See, God has orchestrated for us a salvation for which we can take zero credit. There is no boasting on our part at all. We have to, to have the salvation, we have to abandon any confidence in ourselves. All our confidence, all our exalting, all our rejoicing must be in God. But no one, will boast in God apart from Jesus Christ. And that's what Paul says, that we also exalt in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, when Paul says through our Lord Jesus Christ, he doesn't specify through the resurrected, living and reigning Jesus Christ. But but like, let's not miss the context here of the previous sentence at the end of verse 10. Much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, but we also exalt in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. See, as Paul says that, when he says the Lord Jesus Christ, and I have to speculate here a little bit, but he I don't think he's thinking of Jesus Christ as just payment paid or just finished work. He's thinking of Jesus Christ as he is right now, the Lord Jesus Christ, seated at the right hand of the Father, full of resurrection power. Christ is Lord because he rose and lives. He would not be Lord if he did not rise and if he did not live. 
Indeed, maybe that's the only way Paul ever thinks of Jesus Christ. Maybe it's only us who think of Jesus as past tense payment. See, Paul had met Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus. He saw Jesus Christ. He knew Jesus Christ lives. But how quickly we fall into the trap of thinking of Jesus Christ as, 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 as simply payment, as past tense work. We're okay thinking through Jesus Christ, well, through his death on the cross. No, Jesus Christ is the living person. He is Christ, the living, breathing Lord. He is the Son of God. That is the only Jesus there is. Now, we didn't spend much time going into the context of Romans 5.1, but immediately before there, it is the, the, the context of Romans 5.1 is the resurrection too. So I'm going to go back to Romans 4, and let's, let's see, I'll start at verse 23. Now, not for his sake only was it written that it was credited to him. Okay, so here, starting verse 24. But for our sake also, to whom it will be credited, as those who believe in him who raised Jesus, our Lord, from the dead. He who was delivered over because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. So here, twice in Romans 4, verse 24, he's raised Jesus, our Lord, from the dead. He was raised because of our justification. Then in verse 5, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. See, there in Paul's thinking, and maybe it was always there in his thinking, we have peace with God through our resurrected Lord Jesus Christ, through our living Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 2, through whom also, through our resurrected Lord Jesus, through our living Lord Jesus, we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. Our exalting is in God through and only through our Lord Jesus Christ. We were chosen in Christ. Our salvation is guaranteed by Christ. Our heart was recreated through the Holy Spirit that was outpoured to us. Our lips were loosened and our hands strengthened for obedience through our union with Jesus Christ. All of this is about our resurrected Jesus. It is through Jesus Christ, because he lives, we know that we will live. And we exalt with confidence because we will be saved through him from the wrath to come. So as Paul exalts in God, we're, we're back in verse 11. But we also exalt in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Focuses on the resurrection, the resurrected Christ, the living Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Salvation has been guaranteed through death, through Christ's death and resurrection. See, Paul returns from the living Christ of Resurrection Sunday back to the crucified Christ of Good Friday, through whom we have now received the reconciliation, through what Christ did, through him dying in the place for sinners in behalf of sinners. Reconciliation is ours now through Jesus' death then. The enmity is gone. We have received the blood-purchased reconciliation. We exalt in God through the living Christ for what God accomplished through the crucified Christ. We exalt in God through the living Christ for what God accomplished through the crucified Christ. 
We exalt in God. The reality of this Resurrection Sunday, brothers and sisters, that this Resurrection Sunday is, is different from previous ones. But you have no less reason to boast in God than you did last year. It does not matter, ultimately, what happens with the coronavirus. We have no less reason to exalt in God. It doesn't ultimately matter. And it matters to God, and He cares, and He's sympathetic. He loves us. But ultimately, when it comes to exalting in God, the salvation that we have, this guaranteed through Christ's death and resurrection, it ultimately doesn't matter what we miss out on in this upcoming calendar year. It ultimately does not matter in, in, in comparison to our exaltation what sicknesses we may face or go through. If we lose our jobs, if we have to file for unemployment, even if the food supply chain in America breaks down, see, that doesn't change our exalting in God. There are things that have been guaranteed for us. Our salvation is guaranteed. Our justification is guaranteed. Our reconciliation is guaranteed. Come what may, we exalt in God this Resurrection Sunday. Our confidence, our certainty, our guarantee is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We will be saved. So we rejoice in God. We exalt in God. Will you exalt in God this Lord's day who has guaranteed salvation for you through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ? Will you exalt in God? Brothers and sisters, turn your eyes to heaven and exalt in God for what he has guaranteed us through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, what can we do now except exalt you? We exalt in you. We, we have a boast in you, not that we boast that we know you and others don't, Lord. We exalt in your grace to us and in your mercy and in this plan of salvation. We exalt in your election of choosing us in Christ Jesus. We exalt in your patience with us, Lord. For how many years did you put up with sin upon sin and how patient you've been even after our conversion? We exalt in this incredible plan that Christ would take the punishment of sinners, that your eternal son would become man. We exalt in your, your, your plan of salvation, and we exalt in what you did on the cross. We exalt in how you propitiated yourself through your son's sacrifice. How you made it so that we could be justified, that we could be declared righteous. We exalt in that declaration of righteousness that you've done. We, we exalt in the atonement. We exalt in forgiveness. We exalt in the resurrection. We exalt in the ascension. We exalt in the exaltation of Christ. We exalt that he is seating at your right hand. Now we exalt... Oh, Father, I, a little of heaven is open. God, I wish 
uh, we could see you more, Lord. We want more of your glory. We want to exalt in you more. We want our hearts to be more stirred. We want to repent of our complaining and of our impatience and of our distrust, Lord. We know that these are real trials we are going through, Lord, but we get so small-minded and, and, and we take our eyes away from the heavens and we look and we confess, Lord, that we that we grumble and that we covet, and that we can be so selfish and so impatient and so petty and so and so di 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 disturbed by 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 these these things here lord these these transitory and passing things lord when 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 you have have allowed us to glimpse a little of your glory Father, we exalt in you and we thank you, Lord, that even though our, our, our worship is so, is so imperfect, that Christ is there interceding for us. And not, and not because you are angry, not because you are getting ready to smash. That has been taken care of. We have been justified. We thank you, Father, that you have reconciled us to yourself. We rejoice in that, but we thank you that our great high priest knows that we need mercy and we need help and we need grace and we need the, 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 the strength to continue in hope. And we need from you the ability to exalt in you. So, Father, do a great transformation in our lives. And we know often, Lord, it is little by little, it's bit by bit, Lord. But we want to be people who are more exalting in you. And we want to exalt in you more today than we did yesterday yesterday and more tomorrow than than today lord and may it be true of us that, that that in these strange times we are going through that we would come through them more inflamed with a love for you that your spirit would ignite through the demonstration of christ's love and through our conviction of his resurrection and of what you've accomplished more extolling of you and father when you allow us uh, 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 to to go back into and and some of us are there now daily some of us it'll be a bigger change into more of a, a social world lord may the extolling of you lord may it burst out of us, Lord. And may we be so eager to talk about your justification and about your, your reconciliation and this good news. Father, may we be changed forever. Lord, we can't see Jesus the way that Paul did, but help us to have more of that, of that conviction that Jesus lives and not just knowledge, but that conviction so that we extol you all the more. Oh, Lord. May, may, may you be pleased by our, our extolling you through Jesus Christ because we have been reconciled uh, through him. Father, I thank you that we get to worship you more now. Uh, please, Lord, may you be pleased by our worship. We love you, God. We love you. We love you. We love your son. Thank you for giving your spirit so that we know your love to us. In Jesus' name, amen.